Along with his older brother, he grew up in a small town on the north side of the lake. And like most young boys, he had a dream. He wanted to be a hero. He wanted to be somebody someday. Somebody who knew things, somebody that people would respect and look up to. But the odds were stacked against him and his brother. Getting a quality education was difficult for kids in a no-name town, far removed from the resources of a bigger city. The challenges um, were there uh, around education. The chances of getting accepted into the schools of higher education where they could learn something other than the family trade were, were slim to none. It wasn't as though he didn't have a good work ethic. No, from an early age, he worked hard along with his brother to put food on the family table. And it wasn't as though he lacked intelligence or leadership ability. No, the contrary. He was quick-witted, good with words, confident, courageous even. In a bigger city, he probably would have been discovered. He probably would have quickly risen up the ranks of the social ladder. He probably would have made it to the top. But growing up in their small, remote village by the lake, days turned to weeks, weeks turned to months, months turned to years, and the dream slowly faded of getting out, of making it, of being somebody. He eventually came to terms with the reality that he too would be just like everyone else in his small town, the small town of Bethsaida. Shackled by subsistence living, he had only one vocational option, the family trade. So he married young, settled down, and worked in the fishing business with his brother Andrew. But Andrew wasn't quite as ready as Simon to give up on the dream. Andrew had heard of this traveling nomadic teacher named John, who was accepting disciples. No, John wasn't that respected. Yes, he was a little bit on the odd side, shall we say. True, he wore strange clothes and ate really weird things. But Andrew was unfazed by all of that. Simon, Simon, this could be my chance. This this could be what we've dreamed about when we were little boys. I could be somebody. I could make, I could learn something. And so Simon agreed to give Andrew a leave of absence from the fishing business to go study for a while under crazy John, the baptizer. They said their goodbyes, but it wouldn't be long until Peter would see Andrew making a beeline running towards him with a wild and excited look in his eyes. Simon, we found him. We found the one. We found the Messiah. Crazy John pointed him out to me. You've got to come meet him. Simon was skeptical at first, but since he had never seen Andrew so excited about anything in his life, he decided to go along with him to meet this Jesus of Nazareth, a humble stonemason who had somehow begun to make a name for himself, somehow become a learned learned and respected rabbi. Simon wasn't quite sure what to expect. But he certainly didn't expect that Jesus would take one look at him and immediately give him a nickname. I'm going to call you Rock, Jesus said. Peter in Greek. 
Simon was floored. Here was this important rabbi, this guy who everybody was talking about, taking time to talk to him, a lowly fisherman. And not only was Jesus talking to him, he seemed to like him. (laughs) He seemed to think that Simon could be somebody, a Peter, a rock. Rocks are strong. Rocks are useful. Rocks can be used to build things. So when Jesus showed up on the shore of the lake, a little while later, and said to Rock and his brother Andrew, come, follow me. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. Simon didn't have to labor long over the decision. This is my chance to prove myself. This is my chance to be somebody. If this Jesus is who he says he is, I'm getting on the ground floor of the biggest thing to hit Israel from, since the days of Moses. I can be the rock. I can be the Messiah's right-hand man. I can be the hero that I've always dreamed of being. I'm in. That day began a a three-and-a-half-year journey, a a three-and-a-half-year journey of a lifetime for Peter and his brother. And he would discover that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. He watched in amazement as Jesus changed water into wine healed the sick, enabled the lame to walk, fed a huge crowd with just a, just a little boy's lunch, walked on top of the water. Who does that? Restored sight to the blind, even raised Lazarus from the dead. And not just that, it seemed as though Jesus had big plans for him. About two years into the adventure, Jesus had looked straight at Peter in front of all the other disciples and said, on this rock, I will build my church. I'm finally going to be somebody, Peter thought. I'm Jesus' rock. I'm his right-hand man. I'll follow Jesus anywhere. I'm going to make it big. I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to be known. Their adventure together eventually took them to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, where throngs of people had welcomed Jesus into the city, waving palm branches, hailing him as king, and all of Peter's lifelong dreams were about to come true, or so he thought. But as the week went on, he began to have his doubts. See, at the Passover meal, Jesus began to talk about Someone in their midst to betray him. He started to talk about going away to a place where the disciples could not follow. So Peter, looking at the rest of the disciples, <laughs> and Peter, who is usually the one to, to speak out loud what everybody else was thinking, quickly questioned Jesus, Lord, why can't I follow you to where you're going? And Peter was also the first to affirm his loyalty to Jesus in the midst of all this nonsense about one of them betraying him. Jesus, I'm so loyal to you. I will die for you. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. He declared with confidence. But what Jesus said next blindsided Peter. Will you really die for me, Peter? Will you really lay down your life? Truly, truly, I say to you, You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. You see, Jesus knew something that Peter didn't. Jesus knew that even the rock was weak. Jesus knew that Peter still needed to grow in humility 
and self-awareness, to learn something about the condition of his own heart, Jesus knew that Peter needed to learn the lessons that all of us need to learn. We aren't as strong as we think we are. We tend to overestimate our own ability. We often have a large gap between our intentions and our actual actions. We need somebody to stand in that gap. We need a savior. Quite simply, we're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Labor Day. My name's Mark. I am one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been working our way through the pages of the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 18. We've now come to a crescendo in the narrative. The board is set. The pieces are moving. The religious leaders have baited their trap. Judas the traitor is in their hip pocket. Darkness shrouds their sinister plans to murder Jesus. And Jesus steps out into the night. Things are about to get interesting. If you don't have a Bible, I, will, I just want to invite you to take one. Uh, from our Connect Point and back on your way out. You can even get up in the middle of my sermon and go grab one. It's yours to keep as our gift to you. As always, the words will also be on the screen behind me. But would you please stand as we read together from God's Word. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. When Jesus had, has, Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, the words we studied last week, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron to the east of, of Jerusalem, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. I forgot I wasn't reading the whole passage. We're going to just break this up. You can sit back down. I won't make you stand every time we get to a verse. Don't worry. So as we noted last week, the Last Supper is over. Jesus has left the upper room and has now made the short walk with his disciples outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley to the east and has arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane that sits right at the base of the Mount of Olives. Now, John tells us that this is a place that Jesus frequented with his disciples. It was a hangout spot for them, a place for them to get away and rest, um, get away from the hustle and bustle of the big city. And if you were to visit the Garden of Gethsemane today, here's a picture of what it looks like. Probably not that much different than what it looked like in Jesus' day. Those olive trees, they are really, really old. Now, they weren't there when Jesus was there. These olive trees are 900 years old. Um, Jesus was there 2,000 years ago, but it probably looked somewhat similar to this. Since this garden was a, a common hangout spot for Jesus and his disciples, Judas had a good inkling of where to find them that evening. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. They mean business. Judas and the religious leaders who are plotting to kill Jesus round up a large group of battle-hardened Roman soldiers, pair them up with some Jewish temple police, and they form a posse to go after, Ju after Jesus with Judas as their guide. Now, this seems like a, 
if this seems like a strange marriage, it is. You have Roman soldiers working with Jewish police. But as we will see later in the text, the religious establishment didn't have the authority to do what they really wanted to do, and that's to kill Jesus. Only the Romans had the rights of capital punishment, so they needed to get the Romans involved somehow in this plot to kill Jesus. And they did so by fabricating a story that Jesus is a dangerous insurrectionist. You know, he's, he's going, he wants to take over as king and, and, and kick out the Romans. And so they, they got the Romans sort of up in a tizzy and got them on their team. The Romans took the bait and lent, apparently took the bait because they lent a whole detachment of soldiers, a large group, to come after Jesus in the middle of the night. So imagine the scene with me. It's late at night, probably well past midnight. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus is praying there in the garden while his disciples are doing what? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. And Jesus sees the glow of the torches coming toward the garden. He couldn't help but. It's, it's dark. He probably heard the rattle of the armor as they made their way from the, the city across the valley to the garden. Jesus could have easily run the other direction, but he didn't. Now, what did he choose to do? Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Now, he, he went towards them. He didn't run the other direction. He went towards them. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. And instead of running the other direction, he walks right up to this armed detachment and asks them, Who do you seek? This is not normal human behavior. And we begin to see that Jesus is in total control of this entire situation. Say this out loud with me. Jesus is the hero of the story. That wasn't very loud. Say it again. Jesus is the hero of the story. That's better. So from the soldier's perspective, a random helpful guy has just emerged from the shadows, come toward them, and asked them a question. You know, they probably were about to warn him, hey, hey, be careful. You probably shouldn't be out here in the dark. There's a dangerous insurrectionist on the loose. But before they're able to warn him, Jesus says, who do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And look at verse 6. This is really fascinating. When Jesus said to them, I am he, what happens? They drew back. And fell to the ground. Now, what? Time out. <laughs> when you read something like this, you just can't skip on to the next verse. You have to go, wait, what's going on here? Well, a couple options. One, this detachment of soldiers is so surprised that they just let this dangerous insurrectionist walk right up to them. They jump back, trip over themselves in surprise, fall to the ground. But keep in mind, this is a group of battle-hardened Roman soldiers, that option's fairly unlikely. This probably isn't just sloppy soldiering. Well, then what's really going on? What you can't tell in English is the phrase, I am he, that Jesus utters here in Greek, is simply ego eimi, I am. Now, now it's fair to translate that phrase, I am he, true. 
But I would argue that given the theological attention that John gives to Ego and me throughout his narrative as a reference to the divine name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, 14, I am that I am, that it should probably be translated simply as I am right here. Remember back in John chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And, and the Jews, the crowd picked up stones to stone him at that point because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming to be the God of the universe, the almighty God that's revealed throughout the New Testament. When Jesus says, I am in that way, he's, he's claiming that title. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. It's this same phrase here, ego and me. So, so what's really going on? Jesus, here's what I think. Jesus is showing this arresting posse exactly who he is, exactly who they're really dealing with here. He's not just a dangerous insurrectionist. He's more than that. He's flexing a bit here. He's revealing just an ounce of his true power, his true nature. He's giving them a glimpse of his true glory and his divinity. I am. And they fall back. He flexes and they fall on their backsides. It's kind of humorous, really. Which shows his disciples and us that everything that will happen to Jesus from this point forward is completely voluntary. With a word, he can make a whole battalion of Roman soldiers fall to the ground. Do they arrest him? No. Jesus lets them arrest him. Which just goes to show, say this out loud with me, Jesus is the hero of the story. Now, we don't know how long the posse stayed on their backsides on the ground, trembling in the presence of Almighty God. But in verse 7, Jesus repeats the question. So he asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. We saw that earlier in the narrative of John. He's the good shepherd. If you seek me, let my disciples go. And right here we see the reason why Jesus flexes a bit and causes them to fall on their backside. Why does he do that? Probably, most likely, he wants to protect his disciples. I mean, put, your, put yourselves in, in the boots of the Roman soldiers. You just got knocked to the ground by a guy who merely uttered a word. And now he seems to be surrendering. You know, usually if you're going to arrest, arrest an insurrectionist, you, you grab the whole lot of them. You, you grab the whole group. But here's this guy who seems to be surrendering. And he has just one request. Let these men go. Sure thing, no problem. Um, whatever you say, sir, just don't do that ego and me thing again. The fact that this posse doesn't arrest the whole gang of disciples shows us something here. In giving himself up, 
Jesus ensures his disciples' safety. He rescues them. Say this out loud with me. Jesus is the hero of the story. But there's someone lurking in the shadows, someone behind Jesus who wants to prove his loyalty. Someone who desperately wants to save the day, to be the hero of the story. What's his name? Our boy Peter. Our boy Peter. The rock. And the rock has a concealed carry. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, I mean, who has a sword? Peter has a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. I probably shouldn't laugh. This is serious. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, on one level, this is pretty horrific. Uh, picture the scene. There's a bloody ear flying through the air, falling to the ground. A guy named Malchus is probably screaming bloody murder in the night. But on another level, it is kind of humorous, okay? It is kind of humorous. Peter doesn't pick a fight with a Roman soldier. No, who does he pick? He picks a servant, and he goes after him. And he wasn't think, aiming for this guy's ear. I can guarantee you that. No, he was going for the kill. This is a surprise attack from Peter. You know, he had to strike first. He had to, to go for the jugular. He was aiming for the guy's neck, but missed and took off his ear instead. Peter might have been an excellent fisherman, but we learn here that he was a really bad swordsman. Now, what would you expect to happen next? What would you expect? You would expect the soldiers to draw their weapons charge in and take control of the situation, right? But Jesus beats them to the punch. Jesus is the one who steps in and takes control of the situation. We read in parallel accounts from the other gospels that Jesus says, no more of this, and then picks up Malchus's bloody ear off the ground and reattaches it to his head. So instead of drawing their weapons, the soldiers... And the temple police are probably dropping their jaws in amazement. Instead of drawing their weapons in self-defense, they drop their jaws in utter amazement of what Jesus just did. Quite a night for Malchus, huh? Just get your ear chopped off, and then it's instantly healed. You know, I wonder if John mentions his name here, because that's kind of an odd detail. To include. I wonder if John mentions his name here because he became known in the early church or known to the early church who would have been reading these words. Perhaps because of that night, Malchus becomes a believer and is known among the believers who would have been reading John's gospel um, a few decades later. Just speculation. But do you realize what would have happened to Peter had Jesus not taken control of the situation? If Jesus hadn't taken up the bloody ear and reattached it to Malchus's head, the Roman soldiers would have slit Peter's throat right then and there, right? They would have been justified in doing so. Which just shows us what? Who's the hero of this story? Jesus. Say it, that, say it out loud. Jesus is the hero 
of the story. And after healing this guy's ear, Jesus looks at Peter, tells him to put his sword away and says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, this is not the hour to pour out judgment on these people. This is the hour for judgment to be poured in, into my cup that I must drink, that the Father has given me. See, throughout the Old Testament, this imagery of a cup was used. It was used as as imagery of God's wrath being poured out against human sin. And though Jesus had wrestled with it in prayer earlier that evening to the point of sweating great, great drops of blood, Jesus is intent on doing his Father's will. Jesus is intent on going to the cross and suffering the full brunt of God's wrath against human sin. He knows that he is the substitutionary Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He knows he must drink the cup of God's wrath and drink it down to the dregs in our place on our behalf, to rescue his disciples, to rescue you, to rescue me. Who is the hero of the story? Let's pick it back up in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer of the the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let the disciples go. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We looked at that earlier in the, the Gospel of John. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. You know, we, we sometimes give Peter a bad rap for being cowardly. Just doesn't, there are only two disciples that followed, the rest ran the other way in the night. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, we aren't told who this other disciple is, but since John never mentions himself throughout his narrative. He always refers to himself as something else, the disciple that Jesus loved, the other disciple who got to the tomb first. I'm faster than Peter. Um, He's always referring to himself like that. Scholars are pretty sure that this other disciple is indeed John, our author. And apparently, John has some clout, or at least his father has some clout, and he's using his father's name. How are James and John referred to over and over again? The sons of Zebedee. They're known by their father's name. It gets them into places, even exclusive places like the courtyard of the high priests. And as John gets Peter a backstage pass here, a servant girl begins to question Peter. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And just as Jesus had predicted, denial number one. Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now the camera will pan away from Peter here, Back on to Jesus. 
who's getting questioned by Annas. Annas was the former high priest and um, had been recently deposed by the Romans and replaced by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But Annas still is really the one in power. He's really the one that's still pulling the strings behind the scene, which is why he's still called the high priest here in this text. Verse 19, the high priest, Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. In other words, why are you asking me? You could call in witnesses. It's been public record. Verse 21, why do you ask me? All those who have heard me, what I said to them, they know what I said. And while Annas is questioning Jesus here, Jesus is exposing Annas. Annas already knows what Jesus has said. He can ask anybody about it. And Jesus points out and points this out and does so in a way that turns the tables a little bit on the high priest. He turns the tables on who should really be questioned here. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus says, implying what? I'm not the one with the clandestine plans being carried out in the middle of night under the cover of darkness. You are. Why are you doing this at night? Are you afraid of the people? You're the one that's being secretive. And apparently this strikes a nerve because the authorities get defensive and resort to violence. Look at verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. Let's have a fair trial here. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? You know, Jesus isn't taking this lying down. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And the camera pans back to our boy Peter, who's outside in the courtyard. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Denial number two, just like Jesus predicted. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Aren't you the one with, that doesn't know how to use a sword? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. And as soon as the rooster crows, it dawns on Peter, and it dawns on us that Jesus already predicted this. In many ways, Peter attempted to be the hero of the story, didn't he? When he declared to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus, he meant it. He meant it. And when he wielded the sword in the garden, surely he thought, this is my moment. This is my moment to be somebody. This is my moment to prove myself. This is my moment to show Jesus that I'm loyal. This is my moment to be the hero, to stand with Jesus and go down in a blaze of glory. It was sorely misplaced. 
He trusted in himself, in his own strength, in his own commitment, but he had a gap, my friends, a gap between his intentions and his follow-through, his actions, his ability. On that night, Peter joins or joined the long ranks of a line of human being, beings who know what it's like to have great intentions, but to fall flat on our own faces. And whether we're aware of it or not, my friends, all of us have Peter's same heart condition. All of us have a gap between who, between who we think we are and who we actually turn out to be. None of us are the hero of the story. We all say we value truth, but find it far too easy to bend it under pressure. We all say we value sacrificial living, but spend far too much on ourselves and our own comfort. We all say that we are loving, but often end up hurting even the people that are closest to us. We all have sinned, as the Apostle Paul will say later, and fall short of the glory of God. Turns out that just like Peter... We need a hero to rescue us. It turns out that just like Peter, we need someone else to stand in the gap. It turns out that just like Peter, you need a Savior. I need a Savior. It turns out, say this out loud with me, Jesus is the hero of the story. In the garden, Jesus said to the saviors, take the saviors, the soldiers, he's the savior. Jesus said to the soldiers, take me, let them go. Take me, let them go. The phrase let them go here in Greek has a pretty broad semantic range, range of meaning. It can mean let them go free, but it can also mean let them be forgiven. Let them be acquitted. Jesus offers himself in the place of his disciples. He's arrested that they might go free. He is bound that they might be liberated. He is condemned that they might be pardoned. He is crucified so that they might live. And don't you see, my friends, what is this a picture of? It's a picture of the gospel that we've come to know. Jesus faced the cross. He faced the cross alone so that his disciples didn't have to. So that you didn't have to. So that I didn't have to. On the cross, Jesus died in our place and for our sake. He stood in the gap for us. He drank the cup of God's judgment to the dregs for you, for me. And he rose again to give us life that we might be free, covered in his righteousness. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. This is the gospel. As the band comes back up, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, I'd like to invite you to take the cup and the bread that should be um, on your seat when, or should have been on your seat when you walked in. And as the worship team leads us in a closing song, I want to invite you as they sing.
either in between the verses or right after they finish singing or during one of the verses, to go ahead. You won't be prompted. I won't come back up and prompt you. But on your own, would you take this bread and eat it? As you remember that Jesus stood in the gap for you, he died for you. His body, like this broken bread, was broken and crushed for you. And then when you take the cup and let it be a reminder of Jesus' blood, as he said to his disciples at that last meal, take this cup as a new covenant in my blood and remember, remember. As you drink it, remember that Jesus' blood was shed on your behalf. As you drink this cup, remember that you get to drink this because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in your place on your behalf, instead of you. If you're not a believer here this morning, feel no pressure to participate in this. But if you are a believer, take and remember the one who stood in the gap for you. The one who became sin. The one who knew no sin, who became sin, so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not a righteousness that comes from our own moral performance, but a righteousness that's freely given to us because Jesus stood in the gap. Because Jesus is the hero of the story.